and Savior Jesus Christ, who conquered death. So happy new year. And I don't say that just to be silly or timely with a new year. I say it because God loves new things. God is a God of new beginnings. If you're in Christ, you're a new creature. Someday there will be a new heaven, a new earth, and a new creation. Jesus came and ushered in a new covenant with his blood. God is a God of new things. So happy new year. And we're grateful that you're here to ring in the new year with the people of God and with the power of Christ alive here. I I appreciate the season, the time between Christmas and New Year. New Year's Eve and New Year's celebrations because it gives you a time of reflection, right? You look back on the last year, you're thinking about the next year maybe. This is something you're doing, kind of a time to orient yourself towards things that matter and focus in on what what you hope to accomplish this year as you reflect on the last. In David in Psalm 101, which is where we're going to be this morning, finds himself in a similar situation, a similar position. He's the king of Israel, King David. We had just studied through Ruth, and we saw how God was faithful to bring about King David. And now we're going to look at a psalm of David, where he has assumed the throne in Israel, and he's resolving some things. He has a new kingship, and similar to us, we have a new year. And every year around New Year's, we hear of resolutions. People make resolutions for the new year, goals, desires for this New Year, and Psalm 101 is a psalm of resolutions. And so I want us to think about resolutions this morning, but previously to resolutions, let's think about relationships, relationships that lead to resolutions, resolutions that would then lead or require rhythms, rhythms in your life, and then how those rhythms tie back in and are founded upon a relationship with the living God himself. So if you have your Bible, please open to Psalm 101. I will read it, and we'll begin looking at David's resolve. Psalm 101, I will sing of steadfast love and justice. To you, O Lord, I will make music. I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. I will look with favor on the faithful in the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. Psalm 101. We think, we don't know for certain, but I'm fairly confident that Psalm 101 was written when David was fresh upon the throne. As king. And one of the things that you see, I'll make a case for that in just a minute, but one of the things you see right out of the gate, and I think this is a desire we should have right out of the gate in the new year, is this longing for a relationship, a deep and entrenched relationship with the living God. 
with the living God. Look at verse 1. I will sing of steadfast love and justice to you, O Lord, I will make music. And praise be to God for the team that God has given us here that sings with us and leads us in singing every Sunday. But I hope you see here that this is just the normal action of a follower of Jesus Christ. I will sing of steadfast love and justice. David is a singing king. His heart's enthroned with the glories of his king, the Lord of hosts. And he sings of steadfast love and justice. He's got a very well-rounded, full view, a full understanding of who God is. His steadfast love, strong covenant love for his people where he fulfills every promise that he makes in a steadfast way. He's never going to leave them, never going to forsake them. He's got steadfast devotion to his people's good and as we see in the cross of Jesus Christ, even to his own harm. His warm tenderness for his people, a desire for their presence, his steadfast love. But he also sings of God's great justice, God doing all things right, sitting as judge over the earth, ruling as king, rendering the proper verdict, bringing about just judgments in his prom- proper time. We, David worships a God that he knows and enjoys. He has a rich, full relationship with the Lord. And so then he uses his gifts and his voice to make music to the Lord. And look at verse 2 with me. He says, I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? When will you come to me? This question, when will you come to me, gives us insight probably into when this psalm was written. If you remember when David became king, he had been fleeing from the previous king, Saul. Saul wanted David's life because David was the one anointed to be the next king of Israel. And so Saul is finally actually killed in a battle and by the Philistines, and then David is brought in as king. Now, it's not a very clean portion of Israel's history. But after about seven and a half years, David is anointed king over both Judah and Israel. He's kind of consolidated the kingdom. And now there was a problem because they did not have the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark, God's presence, the symbol of his presence with his people, where his wrath and punishment for sin was satisfied by an offering on the Day of Atonement, where he dwelt in the tabernacle and in the, eventually the temple. This ark was the symbol of God's presence, and it wasn't with King David. And so he had this resolve, I'm going to get God's ark back to us. I think that's what's behind, oh, when will you come to me? If you look at 2 Samuel 6, flip there with me. This is the only other place we're going to flip, so do it with gusto. We won't be all over the place. 2 Samuel 6, it's to the left in your Bible. I always like to tell my girls it's right after 1 Samuel, if that helps at all. It's before the Kings, before the Chronicles. 2 Samuel 6, here is David, and I think this is an important thing for us to see, a moment in David's life, and help you see how his resolve, when will you come to me, O Lord, is lived out right here, and then how he handles it in the moments that follow. Because I don't know about you guys, I don't do all my resolutions. Y'all do, right? You fail. Well, we're going to see some failure here and sympathize a little bit with David. 
but his longing is for the relationship to have God's presence with him. Look at 2 Samuel 6. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherub. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. This is a great moment. Life is going good. Verse 6, and when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it. For the ark, the oxen stumbled, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his terror, and he died there beside the ark of God. God's holiness and perfection is not something we waltz into lightly, is it? Verse 8, and David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And this place is called Perez, Uzzah, to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Does that sound like Psalm 101 too? Oh, when will you come to me? Verse 10, so David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom to get type three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Anytime you're in the presence of the Lord, blessing comes. So what's going on here? David has this resolve as king. He's fresh onto the throne, fresh off multiple military vi victories. They're celebrating. And then this terrible thing happens. Uzzah's just trying to help out. Reaches up, touches the ark to keep it from falling, and he's struck down. Why? David gets angry. I genuinely think David was angry at himself. Because when he says, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? I think this isn't frustration. This is a question, a despairing question, but a question of intent. We've got to find a way to get the ark of the Lord back to where it belongs, the city of David, Mount Zion. And then if you were to read over in 1 Chronicles 15, the parallel passage, you, you get some remarkable insight into the way David processes how to get God's ark back, how to get God's presence back with him. Because he says this in 15, 2 and 13 and 15. I've strung together some verses here just so you can see what David does. Then David said that no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God. So this is David saying, no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God. Where did he learn that? By reading the law. By reading God's word. For the Lord had chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and minister to him forever. And then in verse 13, because you, the Levites, did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule, according to his word. And the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulder with the poles as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. When David says, oh, when will you come to me, God? He goes to his word to find the presence and instruction of the living 
God. And so David's life was ordered around the word of the living God. And, and look at the psalm that guides us in your bulletin here. Psalm 119 guides us. And Linda, beautiful reading of Psalm 19 that focuses on the word of God as well. Look what it's emphasizing here. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. And then right before Pastor Travis prayed the confession, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord, who keep his testimonies, seek them with their whole heart. Psalm 119.4 that led us into this sermon, you have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. And I won't steal from Pastor Rick's thunder as he sends us later with a renewed emphasis on knowing and hearing and receiving God's spoken word to us. It ordered David's life when he longed to know how to receive and interact with the presence of the Lord and have him with him. He went to his words. And so when David says in verse 2, I will ponder the way that is blameless, he's got this desire for a relationship of saying, you are the blameless one. I want to walk in a blameless way. I will think about the blameless way. I will commit my mind to truth, to knowing your word, your blameless way. So David highly prioritized his relationship with the Lord from the get-go of his kingship. And, And it was by submitting to and understanding God's word, hearing from him, enjoying him, immersing himself in the presence of the living God and His Word. And so before we resolve things for the new year, ask a question. Is this flowing out of my relationship with God? And if I accomplish these resolutions, will I look more like Jesus? Or will I just be prideful? Or I have a better social media presence? Or I look better in the mirror, and maybe all those things happen. I don't know what your resolutions are, but will they ever get you into the presence of the living God where you're enjoying a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of His Holy Spirit? Consider your resolutions, because as David goes on to these resolutions, they show some really great, strong desires. And I want to say resolutions are good. Resolutions are needed. We have to resolve to do good things. They reveal that the world is broken. It's not the way it's supposed to be. So resolutions are a healthy thing. Commitment to seeing God's character and order restored in our lives and in the world around us. And so as David goes on as his king, we see a couple things in these resolutions. There's private resolutions, and then he'll move to more public resolutions. In verse 2, he has this... He's enjoying his relationship with God. His resolutions are going to reflect a commitment to the holiness and the purity of God. They reveal a desire of a man who's just become king, but they're incredibly applicable to us. I hope that your resolutions would take some of the language of this psalm. Notice first this resolution of the mind. He has resolutions about his mind. I will ponder the way that is blameless, he says. In verse 2, and then in verse 4, a perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. So he has a a purposeful resolve to think 
blameless things, to think on righteous ways and not fill your mind. I will know nothing of evil, to be an infant in evil. Here's a man committed to filling his mind with what's right, what's just, what's true, what's lovely, what's commendable. If there's anything excellent, anything worthy of praise, anything that magnifies Christ, think about these things. And not just thinking about those things in the blameless way, but then also avoiding thoughts of evil. Removing opportunities for evil thoughts and evil things to be put into your mind. You fill your mind with truth, you rid your mind of evil. And as we're, as we're moving from resolutions to rhythms in just a minute, maybe that's, maybe that's a rhythm that you're going to be thinking about, is filling your mind with truth, ridding your mind of evil, this regular rhythm in your life. But he also makes a resolution about his heart. Look at verse 4. A perverse heart shall be far from me. Uh, a heart that's, that's crooked, a heart that's bent on the wrong things, a heart that loves to resist and constantly aggravate or push back. He acknowledges right out of the get-go that he could have a perverse heart, that he has one. If you read Psalm 32 or 51 of David's, you know he knows his own sinful heart. But he's saying, it will be far from me. This is, this is a healthy resolve. This is a good resolve to have a pure heart. He will flee from it. But then, heart and mind, then he works to the just of his, like the bulk of his resolutions are about his will. What he's actually going to do. The actions he will take. And see this as a natural flow for every person's life. If your relationship with the Lord is intact and you're walking with Jesus Christ and he's filling your mind with truth, Your heart then is going to have new loves, new desires. It's going to change. And then it's going to flow itself out into your life, into actions that will reveal what you love and reveal what you think because you do what you think. I think ribeyes are good. I order ribeyes. I love them. Thank you, Scott Combs, for the most recent blessing. But, But if I thought they were bad, I wouldn't order them. You do what you think and what you love flows into your actions. So I just want you to see it's natural. Your relationship with the Lord, increasing your mind with his truth, your love for him, it rolls out into your life. Look at verse 2. He says, I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. What a strong resolution. I will walk with integrity of heart. Within my house. Isn't it interesting that he says, within my house. Because what you do in your home, when you're alone, or no one's looking, is who you are. And he says, I will walk with integrity of heart, with wholeness of being. In my house. When no one's looking. Because he knows, God is always looking. Verse 3, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. What a beautiful resolution. What a beautiful resolution. And in our day of excessive screens and excessive immorality on those screens, this is one to take to heart. I will not set before my eyes anything 
that is worthless. I will not, these I will nots are like the strongest negation he could have used in his language. I'm not going to do it. And he says, I will not set anything that is worthless before my eyes. This has in, in mind the intentional, purposeful placing of immoral, evil things, worthless things before our eyes. We've all seen worthless things. You can't not see worthless things. You can't check out at the grocery store without seeing worthless things. There's just everywhere. Okay, You can't open Instagram without it. But are you hoping to see something moderately worthless? Are you hoping to create an opportunity where you might accidentally see something worthless? David's saying, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. And then he says, I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. This idea of work that David speaks of is the effort that it takes to sin. When he sees people working and entangled and ensnared in these efforts to sin, he hates it. And when he sees it in his own life, he says, I will hate the work of those who fall away, those who pursue into sin. Sin will cling to you. It will cling to you unless you resist it. It will cling to you unless you flee from it. Right? Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let's lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So sin clings to us. And if you don't hate the work of those who fall away and it, you don't want it to cling to you, you're going to let it cling. It has to be a res- resolve. It has to be a purposeful resistance to sin in your life. And this is a, this is a great display of David's desires. Resolutions reflecting the holiness and righteousness of God. And he says, I'm going to give time to think about and be intentional with my resolutions in my heart, with my mind with my will. So wherever your heart, your mind, your will is out of step with the holiness and righteousness of God, let that begin to be where you resolve to see change, to do work in the new year. And then David transitions to public resolutions. And I think it's important to see he went private first. He went to his own heart, his own mind, his own actions before he went public with his resolutions. It's very popular to go public with your resolutions. And before, as he's going public here, he's speaking about the people that he's going to surround himself with. And his resolutions are to separate himself from the wicked and surround himself with the godly. Separate himself from the wicked. Look at verse 5. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Now, you know, we don't have the freedom to destroy people because we're not king. Sorry, you're not king. But I think you can figure the application here to your own life. Right? There's a separation involved here of those who slander, those who are arrogant. He goes on in verse 5, Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. These ideas, these slanderers, they're arrogant. They have a wide heart. The Hebrew says it's like this wide heart that's saying, look at me, look at me. And they slander people because... They're so focused on themselves, they can only see bad in others. They can't see the grace of God or the goodness of God or the kindness of God or the the goodness that you see in other people, what they're doing. 
So they slander. They slander them. Or look at verse 7, the deceitful. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. It's helpful to think that David is the king, and the king is going to execute a lot of his plans and his purposes and accomplish things through a team, right? So he's talking in a lot of ways about his, his court, or like if the president would have a cabinet here. And he zeroes in on their character, which is a lesson for us today, that the leadership should be reflective of character primarily. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. But, but the, the concern here is deceit and lies, right? He was wanting so deeply to know the blameless way, to think right thoughts, that he was going to remove from himself those who speak lies, those who speak deceit, those who make claims that can't be proven, those who spread ideas without grounds. So think about that in your own life, in your own resolutions, as you're stepping out into the world, or who are the people you're surrounding yourself with? Because there's a call here to separate from the wicked, and I, I don't mean to never talk to them. They need the love of Jesus Christ. They need you in their life. But you're letting the word of the Lord overrule their words. You're letting your godliness and the work of Christ in you influence them and call them to Christ. So our friendships do have an influence on our lives. The people we surround ourselves with do have an influence on us, right? We tell children this often. I'm sure you've seen this in your own life. So then David says, I want to surround myself with godly people. Verse 6 says, I will look with favor on the faithful in the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. He wants those who are blameless to dwell with him. He wants his friends to be trustworthy, godly men or women, that they would oversight of God's people, they could be, you know, these were men who, as they were having oversight of God's people, they would be proven, faithful, steady men, but they would also be able to speak to him and have the king's ear, surrounding himself with godly people. So when he says here, minister, those who, in verse 6, he who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me, this really means David has people in his life who are speaking to him who will correct him. And as we'll touch base on in just a minute, praise be to God he had them. Guys like Nathan who would rebuke him, and Joab. Do you have people in your life that you've surrounded yourself with that if they see you walking away from Jesus, if they see you acting in a way that doesn't honor and magnify the Lord, they'll call you back. They'll say, whoa, 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 hold up, hold up. Hey, let me... Put my arm around you. Let me help you pursue Jesus together. Let's, let's pursue Christ in this. Or do all of your influential friends, all of the people in your life, tend to be like the deceitful, the prideful, the arrogant, the, the slanderers? Who is in your life? Who are you surrounding yourself with? His resolution, David's resolution, was to have godly people around him. And so his resolution, his relationship, I'm sorry, with God himself, led him then to make resolutions that reflected the character of God and then a desire for holiness and righteousness. 
But then his resolutions led to rhythms. Rhythms. Y'all have fun spelling that. Rhythms. Last time I taught, preached here, I had a misspelled word in my outline. And I was typing rhythm this week and misspelling it because it's not easy to spell. R-H-Y-T-H-M. Rhythm. I, I don't know why I'm telling you this. But it's not on the screen. So R-H-Y-T-H-M is how you spell rhythm. And that H in there throws me off every time. But I just thought I would tell you that and make fun of myself in the moment. Verse 8 says this. Morning by morning I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. His resolutions then led to what I'm saying now as rhythms. Rhythms in his life. Morning by morning. Morning by morning I will do this. Morning by morning. Wouldn't you, man, if, if beating sin was a one and done thing this side of heaven, it would be so nice. But I'm sure you guys like me are tired of fighting the same sins over and over and over. And that's why we need rhythms in our life. Rhythms over and over and over. Like David said, I'm destroying all the wicked of the land. Morning by morning, resisting the flesh. Morning by morning, confessing sin. Morning by morning, receiving from the Lord his word. Morning by morning, remembering Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and that you can receive his forgiveness for those sins. Morning by morning, embracing the mercies that are new. Morning by morning, rhythms in your life causing you to encounter the risen Lord in deep relationship that will inform those resolutions that you've made that will lead you to rhythms in your life, that connect you to Jesus Christ, that lead you to make resolutions that honor him, that lead you to rhythms, that lead you to Jesus. Do you see what I'm doing? You see how this like just works in our life over and over, rhythms, rhythms. Pastor Cam is going to be preaching throughout the year on separate rhythms at times, encouraging you to take in these rhythms in your life. Rhythms are formative things in your life. They gradually shape you over time, long time, into the person that you are. They are more formative than the singular big events. Now, we, those things can be very impactful, but the daily in and out rhythm of what you do will shape you for your entire life. We often look for like this grand moment when our character will be proven and everyone will see how great you are. There's probably a few of you men in here who've already, already planned out what's going to happen if someone comes through those doors with ill intent. You already know how you're going to take them out. Like we, we plan for these grand moments, guys do. I don't know about you ladies. I don't know what y'all plan for. But I'm sure there's big moments in there too. But really, the sum of our character is not made up by singular grand moments. The sum of our character is made up by the rhythms and the moments and the thousands of choices we make over and over every day that accrue to create who we, who we are. A friend of mine, for, it's been a, more like an acquaintance now, Sam James had a recent blog that came out, and he was saying every facet of our society right now, news, political, culture, entertainment, even religion, is caught up with major problems that need 
major solutions. And it's fun to talk about those and easy to argue about those because you really can't do much about it singularly right here. So it doesn't, you can argue about them, you can talk about it, it doesn't create a ton of immediate responsibility in your life. But the hard reality is much of our sin and suffering is from small things, little decisions that we make. You don't wake up a selfish person one day all of a sudden. Like, I was giving a ton of money yesterday and time, and now I quit. It doesn't happen overnight. Right? You stop serving here. You stop giving generously here. You ignore a need here. All of a sudden, you realize that selfishness has kind of consumed you, and you stop giving. Lust is the same way. Destruction, destructive actions are the fruit of small indulgences here and there. A little by a little here, a little bit here, a little bit here. And then all of a sudden, little indulgences accumulate into patterns that crush our souls. But the good news is that godliness is the same way. Godliness works the same way. Regular rhythms of walking with Jesus, talking with Jesus, confessing sin to Jesus, receiving forgiveness from Jesus, renewing your devotion to him meeting with others to discuss God's word, worshiping here with God's people. These things have a cumulative effect over the years, and over the years you look more like Jesus. And maybe someone who hasn't seen you in 10 years comes and says, you're very, you're different. The Puritan John Flavel said that growing in Christ is not, it's not as you just see growth. It's like you don't see it growing. It's like grass. You just know it's grown now. It needs to be cut again. Growth in Christ, Jesus is like that. You don't, you don't always see the growth, but all of a sudden, after time, rhythms, years, you're more like Jesus. So rhythms are really important. Rhythms are really important. What are the rhythms of your life? And by rhythm, I mean, what do you notice if it's missing? What do you notice if it's missing? You take something out of your life tomorrow. What do you, oh, it's not right. If you don't brew coffee tomorrow morning, I bet you're going to be out of rhythm. That's right. Amen. Right? When I'm playing guitar up here and Mike is on the drums, I know when I'm out of rhythm. Mike's got it down and I'm off the rhythm and it's on me and I'm going to get back in the rhythm. See, rhythms have a way of calling you back to those good things. Good rhythms do, right? Calling you back to what you should be pursuing. So if, this, if you have this rhythm of, of reading the Word in the morning, when you miss it, you feel it. Ah, oh, I, missed, I missed that. I loved hearing from God every morning. I missed that today. Um, look forward to it tonight or tomorrow morning. Like it, it, rhythms, godly rhythms have a way of pulling you back to them. But so do ungodly patterns. Ungodly Rhythms. So what are your rhythms? I don't know. I had to brew coffee in the morning. I have to. I do Wordle while it brews. So I'm a Wordle guy, Wordler. I think it's more challenging if you haven't had coffee yet. Time, then, then as it's brewing, time with Jesus. You know, I left, after the coffee hits, the Spirit of God attends. And uh, Psalm 101, I look at or whatever. I, I join, I, I have time in the Word, and Sarah usually joins me at that point. It's usually the, one of the sweetest times of my day. And then I long for some form of exercise during the day, right? You feel out of rhythm. What are your rhythms? What, what, what are yours? I eat at least three times a day with a few snacks, and that rhythm usually leads to more resolutions. To get. 
Whatever yours are, I don't know. Checking the news. Some people have to check the news. They have to know what's going on. Maybe it's a, a cleaning up in the house thing. You're just inclined towards cleaning the house or writing, writing in a journal, maybe a diary, social media, reading a book, time outside. I don't know. What are your rhythms? What are your rhythms? And what are they cultivating in your life? Where are they leading you to? I encourage you to build rhythms into your life that will cultivate the right things. Things like reading the Word. Things like being with the people when they're gathered. Things like noticing evil thoughts, replacing them with truth. Seeking the presence of the risen God. Inviting friends into your life. You know, David didn't do this perfectly, did he? And he, he walked out of his, off his couch, got off his duff one afternoon when the kings were off at war, and he saw a woman bathing and desired her and asked her to come. He set worthless things before his eyes, and he did not ponder the blameless way, and he went down that road, and by God's kindness, he had godly men around him that said, David, this is sin. You are the man. You took this woman to be your own, and you killed her husband. And he called her out. Pray, he called him out. Praise God for godly friends. It'll call you back to Jesus. So what are these rhythms in your life? Hearing God's voice, speaking to him, being with his people. They're not impressive usually. But by the power of the Spirit, they're transformative in your life. Absolutely transformative. And we want to help you with this as pastors. But I want to help you to end where we started. Because I can't help you as much as Jesus can. He goes with you everywhere, everywhere you are. He will counsel you. He will meet you. We can give you a reading plan. We can encourage you to pray. We can do all kinds of stuff. But, but let's spin back where David started and we started with this relationship. I want you to think of several things just about King Jesus as we go into this new year. Jesus said, David said in Psalm 101 too, oh, when will you come to me? And just last week we celebrated Christmas that God did indeed come to us. And in a few months, we're going to celebrate Easter. But Jesus conquered the grave. Because he came, Jesus came, the one that you and I are in a relationship with, if you believe in Jesus Christ, he came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to do things like, he was known as, the, in the stories he gave, he's the strong man that's going to bind the devil and ransom what is his. Demons, when they saw Jesus they knew their time was limited. They fled at his presence. Hebrews 2 teaches Jesus came to free those ensnared by the one who has the power of death by destroying him. If we focus in on our relationship with Jesus Christ, you're focusing in on the man. You're immersing yourself in the presence of the one who came to destroy everything evil and sinful in this world. You came, you're focusing in on and delighting in and immersing yourself in the presence of the risen Christ who came to create in you that which is pleasing in his eyes. Who came to deal with the penalty and the power and the presence of sin in our lives. What happens when you go to Jesus? The penalty of sin is paid. The penalty of sin is paid. Hang on to these three. Penalty, power, and presence of, of sin. Think about Jesus here. Jesus paid it all, right? His perfect life, death, burial, resurrection. He paid it all. He obeyed it all. He was perfectly righteous, and he paid it all. He paid the death that your sins and my sins deserve. He fully absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf 
so that we can be welcomed in the presence of the living God. We can say, like the song, no condemnation now, I fear. None. No condemnation do you fear. I hope that song stirs you. Why can you boldly approach the eternal throne of God? Because you're clothed in righteousness divine, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. No condemnation. He took the penalty for sin completely, paid it all. Not only that, though, the power of sin is broken by King Jesus in your life. Romans 6 teaches that you've been set free from sin, no longer enslaved to sin, but now a slave to righteousness. There's been a break, a definitive break from sin's power in your life. So when you're thinking of resolutions and rhythms, how am I going to do this? Well, go to Jesus who's paid it all. He took the punishment your sins deserve. But he also broke the power of sin in your life. You're a new creature in Christ. He gave you his Holy Spirit to finish what he started in you. Remember what we just sang. That's my favorite part of Ancana B. I would probably request this song every time I preach. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. You can do that because the power of sin in your life by Jesus Christ has been broken. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. And so Jesus paid it all. The punishment's gone. The power of sin has been broken. And then the presence of sin will be progressively removed in this life. The presence of sin. Just as David was resolving for these things, through rhythms of being in the presence of the living God, he removes the presence of sin in our lives, right? 2 Corinthians 3.18 teaches that we remove, remove from one degree of glory to another. We strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And Jesus says in 1 Peter 2.24 and other places that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we would die to sin and live to what? Righteousness. So what Jesus died to do is to not just save you from your sin, which is glorious, but also to make you righteous. And don't tell me Jesus won't succeed. Don't tell me he's not going to do what he set out to do. He's King Jesus. So his blood purchased you from the grave, broke the penalty of sin for you. He paid it all. He broke power of sin over you. But he also, by his blood, intends to remove the presence of sin from your life until he comes back and does it universally, and makes all things new. He paid it all. He freed you from the power of sin. He cleanses you. In part now, someday, completely, God loves new things. He loves a new year. What rhythm, what rhythms in your life are you going to begin to get yourself consistently in the presence of Jesus Christ? So that you receive his power over sin, you remember that your penalty of sin is paid for. And then he will continually through this year remove the presence of sin from your life. Think along those lines. Because that's what Jesus paid to do. That's what he came to do. And he will. He will. Let's pray.